The number of people crossing the U.S. border fell this weekend. A pandemic-era border rule, which let the U.S. turn asylum seekers away, expired last week. There was a record surge of crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border leading up to that change. There were 4,200 crossings on Saturday. Government took data, which showed down from more than 10,000 a day earlier last week. North Carolina's governor vetoed an abortion ban on Saturday. The bill passed by the state legislature this month would ban nearly all abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy. It was blocked by Democratic Governor Ray Cooper. Republicans hold supermajorities in both chambers of the legislature and could override the veto. But Democrats are trying very hard to pull some Republicans onto their side. States are sending people to college for free to fight a teacher shortage. Apprenticeships allow trainees to make more money while they learn the craft and earn their credentials. In the past 17 months, programs have been certified in 16 states. The teacher shortage is caused by a combination of low pay, exhaustion, and a feeling of being increasingly under attack. Top advisors to President Biden are planning a 2024 battleground strategy that fully invests in North Carolina while mounting an early challenge in the increasingly Republican domain of Florida, home to two of his top rivals. In several capitals across red America, gun control advocates say they are seeing faint, if sometimes fleeting, in what has long been staunch Republican opposition to any whiff of firearms restriction. The small shifts have come amid a gruesome torrent of mass killings in red states, including shootings at a school in Tennessee, a bank in Kentucky, a home outside Houston, and earlier this month, a suburban Dallas outlet mall where eight were killed. Well, while there was ongoing efforts to make it more difficult to vote in many Republican-controlled states, a research group found there has also been a quiet counter-movement to expand access to voting across the country. A new report by a nonpartisan group that focuses on analysis that advances free and fair elections found that nearly a third of legislation passed in state houses earlier this year actually make it easier to vote through policies such as expanding early and male voting opportunities, restoring felon voting rights, and providing more time to voters for fixing errors on ballots, among other things. Well, heading into an expected meeting between President Joe Biden and congressional leaders this week, Republican lawmakers say an agreement on spending caps is important in securing their support to avert a dangerous debt default. The House passed debt ceiling bill would slash federal spending to fiscal year 2022 levels requiring appropriators charged with allocating government funding to cut, get this, $131 billion compared with what Congress is currently spending. Meetings that target uh, cutting defense, well, cutting defense funding would require a 17% cut to, well, let me start over. Not cutting defense funding would require a steep 17% cut to non-defense discretionary spending. This is Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. 
In this hour, I am joined by two of my favorite and I must say two brilliant contributors, a Los Angeles Times reporter, Gustavo, Gustavo Arreano, and Monique Presley, a legal commentator and host of the podcast, Make It Make Sense with Monique Presley. They are both here to help us make sense of today's trending news. And in my second hour, I go one-on-one with Danielle Monet Truitt. She is the star of Law and Order, Organized Crime, and she's out with a one-woman play called Three Black Girl Blues. I sit down and talk with Danielle about her role on the uber-popular Dick Wolf series, Law and Order. Also, what prompted her to write and to perform Three Black Girl Blues? But before I bring on my guests, here's what I'm thinking about in real time. I don't know if you saw this, but now there is this focus by some companies to change diversity, equity, and inclusion training to now call it diversity and belonging. Uh, now you got to add DEI, you got to add the B to DEI. So it's diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, or diversity, equity, and belonging. This question of belonging has become a latest focus in this kind of evolving world of corporate diversity inclusion programs. Uh, after George Floyd's murder in 2020, we saw an explosion in these programs. Corporations were turning their attention to addressing systemic racism and power imbalances, uh, things that they noted had kept boardrooms white and employees of color feeling excluded from office work, or office environments. Now we are three years post the murder of George Floyd, and lots of companies are rethinking their approach to diversity and equity. Some are cutting back altogether. They've gotten rid of their diversity programs. Uh, some have scaled back substantially, and others are looking at renaming their departments to include the word belonging. Some say it is the age of DEIB. Now, critics, and I think I'm one of these critics, I need to learn a lot more about this belonging, but I worry that this is all about making white people feel comfortable rather than addressing systemic inequality, or that it simply comes down to companies, you know, prioritizing getting along, making everybody get along, making folks feel like they belong rather than addressing necessary changes. Uh, you know, belonging is a way to help people who aren't marginalized, and that's these white men, mostly who are running a lot of these companies, feel like they're a part of the conversation. Now, a professor at the Wharton School of Business who studies diversity and inclusion, she too is worried uh, that we are creating these new terms as a way to manage resistance, the resistance that we saw to a lot of the diversity and equity programs uh, that were put in place after George Floyd's murder. I spent a lot of time uh, after George Floyd's murder talking to diversity and equity inclusion specialists about what they were doing and how enthusiastically they were being embraced right after his murder and how slowly over time some of those same companies that brought them on started to eliminate them, get rid of their contracts. And those that didn't eliminate them started to change their focus. Uh, I had one diversity specialist tell me that one company asked her, could she not use the word white? Because it made the white people in the room feel uncomfortable. Really? That's a true story. <laughs> and my producer is here with the receipts to tell you. 
Uh, and others just talked about how senior level managers, they used to show up at these trainings. All of a sudden they were absent. They stopped coming. They started to send their low level employees. The whole shift in focus was away from really addressing systemic racism, really addressing the lack of people of color at the top of some of these companies in the C-suites and definitely in the boardrooms. And now there's something called belonging. I don't know, I'm thinking about Michelle Obama's book. Maybe that's what prompted this change. But in any event, I hope that efforts to make people feel comfortable is not just a way for the white men predominantly who are in control in a lot of these big companies to stop talking about systemic racism, to stop working on making these workplaces more inclusive, to stop talking about ways to ensure that people of color and women are given a fair opportunity uh, to rise to the top of organizations, that this isn't just another way, and we know America's good about this. Whenever we get into tough conversations about race, Americans and America would rather talk about anything other than systemic racism. And I hope this whole conversation around belonging and now DEIB is not just another effort to avoid the elephant in the middle of the room. Folks, racism is not going away. We can call it belonging, we can call it inclusion, we can call it whatever, but at the end of the day, we have a problem. And the problem is we do not have the opportunities for women and people of color in this country to do as well in most environments as white folks, particularly white men. So let's stay focused and let's get something done in the same spirit that we were working after George Floyd's murder so that his death, his life, well, would not have been in vain. That's what I'm thinking about in real time. When we come forward, more of today's trending news with my expert contributors right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. Council. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right. I am back today. I am joined by contributors, Los Angeles Times reporter Gustavo Arellano and Monique Presley. Thank you both for joining me today. Uh, I know we hadn't necessarily planned to talk about this, but just in the moments uh, since we started the show, there's a new report out. The special counsel, uh, Gustavo John Derman, has issued his long-awaited report. Uh, the report sharply criticizes the FBI for investigating the 2016 Trump campaign. Uh, he says it's based on raw, unanalyzed, and uncorroborated intelligence. Uh, some are saying this conclusion is going to fuel rather than end a partisan debate about the, politi uh, the politicizing of the Justice Department and the FBI. But I think the most important thing about this report to me is it doesn't really tell us a whole lot more than what we knew, and it's not recommending any charges. Have you had a chance to look at any of the press about this report? And what are you thinking about it? No, not, I haven't seen it yet. But look, I'm sure it's going to be the same thing we've heard many, many times. We all know Trump is a charlatan. We all know he loves to dance on the edge of legality. And sometimes he has crossed that law as evidenced by lawsuits and bans and all of this. He, of course, will claim a witch hunt and his supporters will claim further the evidence of the deep state trying to take down Trump and it not happening. And his haters are just going to it'll be interesting to see what the critics of say about this, because if, if a report is saying that the FBI is doing overreach, I mean, we have been living in a bizarre world where you have a liberal uh, 
applauding the FBI and applauding the sort of government <laughs> investigations that historically very skeptical about. I still say that the best way to defeat Trump is let him be the fool that he is, but also don't give him don't give more oxygen to the dumpster fire that he is. Yeah, Monique. So this report cost the taxpayers more than six point five million dollars. And at one point, Donald Trump was saying this was going that, uh, you know, Durham was going to uncover the crime of the century. He was going to uncover all of these horrible things. There's going to be, you know, lots of folks charged in the FBI and the Justice Department and the report. Not so much. So what do you make of this extensive investigation that's really not telling us much more than what we already knew? You're on mute. Yeah, I think we're getting your audio, hopefully. Can you hear me? Yes. Great. Thank you. I haven't seen it yet, Ariva. And so you're giving me the breaking news that it's out. I don't want to commit the cardinal rule number one of communicating and talk what <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> at least my rule number one is talk what you know. So I look forward to seeing it. I'm not surprised by what you're saying about it, obviously. Um you know, it's it's never the way he forecasts things to be because he projects what he wants things to be. Um, but I would be interested to see whatever criticism was was levied against the FBI and whether there's any merit to it. Well, I'm trying to get both of you. Maybe Avi can send you a link to it. I love to get both of your opinions closer to the end of the show. But let me ask you something, Monique, about this DEIB. Uh, you do a lot of work around crisis management and you've helped a lot of companies deal with issues. How are you feeling about this notion that belonging is the way that we should be thinking about diversity and inclusion because that's going to be less off-putting, uh, it's going to be more inclusive, it's going to make everybody feel uh, a part. I'm kind of thinking about, you know, when we started giving everybody a trophy, whether you won the game or not, we wanted everybody, every kid to go home with a trophy. But do you think this is the way to go? Because a lot of these companies have been backsliding big time on their efforts to even address uh, diversity issues. Well, I, I'm for whatever helps, Ariva. But frankly, um, I think that the DEI space has been sliding for a long while. Uh, and that the flashes we saw, as you said uh, in your open, the flashes that we did see are always around particular horrific events. It is no longer the case that as a mainstay, um, these companies are being are doing anything that they are not forced to do. There was a period of time where it was not in vogue to, to not be doing real hard work in the space and be able to brag about it. Nobody even has to do that anymore. Now it's kind of a matter of course. Oh, of course, you've got your DEI. Oh, of course, you've got your person in-house to say you have someone. But that the reason why so many people who used to do really great work there have transitioned to other things is because they concluded um, that the space was no longer addressing the real needs and making real changes. Now, will adding a B to it help? I'm all for good language. Um, I'm, you know, I'm all for getting the branding right on something, but I, I always thought and still do that it's the lack of comfort around this topic that is helpful. So yeah. I, I don't know. It's not a warm, fuzzy umbrella. Um, it's it, the whole reason it exists is 
to educate around and correct for issues that are stark uh, in contrast, where people are not being treated fairly due to color, uh, due to sex, et cetera. And I, I don't, I didn't think it was about belonging, but I, I could be wrong. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm happy to re- be wrong. What, what are you feeling about this, Gustavo? Like I said, I, I think I'm with the critics. It just feels like another way to avoid dealing with the real issues of equity in this country. Yeah, look, when corporations start embracing something, you already know it has been <laughs> deracinated from its radical concepts. And it's funny because they t- they see a way to make money. They see, okay, we're going to have our DEI and LB boards. We're going to have a whole program that's going to get us closer to the market. All they care about is consumers and the market. But when it comes to these tough talks, oh, no, they don't want that at all. I remember years ago, this is years ago, even before the whole idea of DEI was given those initials, I got asked to speak to some, it was like a business group down here in Orange County, California. And they wanted me to talk about sort of the hidden histories of Orange County. So I just let them have it for like half an hour, just talking about all the nasty racism of white supremacy in Orange County. And then at the end, a woman said, oh, you're really making us feel uncomfortable. I'm like, that point, isn't that why you invited me? Well, I never got the invitation again. I hope that that's what corporations need. It's like you want to make people feel uncomfortable. That said, of course, with, for the people within these corporations, the people of color, they do need to feel like they belong. They do need to feel respected. But you know how that happens? By getting more of us into those positions of leadership to change these corporate cultures instead of just paying lip service to a better corporate culture. Yeah, no, I think how I read the article, uh, the B, Gustavo, is not to make people of color feel like they belong. It's to make the people already in positions of power no, feel that's like even they worse, belong. <laughs> I think it's to make them feel like they belong because they started complaining that they felt left out because there was all this focus on, you know, DEI. And, you know, it's, oh, it's, it's just America. That's all I can say. It's just America being America and... God forbid we really have a serious conversation about systemic racism and start to make some headway and somebody at the top starts to say, well, what about us? We don't really feel good. Like the woman says, I don't really want to talk about the racism in Orange County. You're making me uncomfortable. And they say, okay, well, we got a solution to this. We won't get rid of all of our DEI. We'll add a B and then we'll focus and we'll make everybody feel good. Well, why does the person sitting in positions of power, they already feel damn good. They're making all the money. They have all the decision-making authority. Like, what, what, what are you uncomfortable about? So, okay, I'll get off my soapbox. Let's talk about Joe Biden, Monique. <laughs> She's going in too. He says, I'm not giving up anything. North Carolina, Florida, here comes the Democrats. What do you think is going to be the best strategy for Joe Biden going into these ruby red states and trying to challenge Republicans? Wait, did you say that there's going to be a good strategy? Uh, well, the Democratic strategy is not to avoid going into these red states like North Carolina, like uh, Georgia, like Florida. He says he's competing across the board. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that an all state strategy is wrong. Uh, the focus on North Carolina is obviously very right. Um, I'm from Texas, so I, I I will never give up on Texas. People don't remember that Texas was once blue, blue, blue. Deep in the heart of Texas was blue, uh, and it's been red so long now 
that people forget that. So um, I, I think it's necessary. I just am concerned about the money's being about the way that the money is distributed. That's what I should say. I am concerned about what that will mean for distribution of funds because our folks, um, black folks who won the last election, you know, Georgians uh, who ensured that that we still have a democracy um, should not be at all taken for granted. And, and whatever new decisions are made, it is important that the same messages that got us across the finish line last time are present and built upon uh, because I, I, I have a concern when I hear people saying, well, what are they doing for us? What are they? And there's a million things, but we don't seem to know it. Yeah, no, th that's a good point. So Gustavo, uh, Monique says, look, I don't mind us having a 50 state strategy of going to every state in the country, including these red states. But what we can't do is pull money away from those grassroots organizations that are really targeting a base. Do you think Biden is stretching himself too thin or we should focus on those states that we know we can win to make sure we turn out the vote and then some of those swing states? Yeah, there's going to be states like California. You don't even have to worry about it. New York. There's going to be states that are a little bit more blue, but more uh, in competition. Uh, say uh, Colorado. It's like Biden won Colorado, even though then the battle states like uh and North Carolina, well, Georgia was you know right down the line, but a state like Florida, I hate to say now, I think it's a lost cause. There's no reason to spend some money. You should definitely support the local candidates, but you cannot win if the grassroots are losing. If these you know local boards, local councils, and all of that are not making it happen, so I, I mean, it's it's hard though. It, it hard with that fifty state strategy. And I do think, though, that you have to start early. So like for and I think we're talking about North Carolina. So North Carolina, Biden lost it, didn't lose it by much, but it's still the South. I, I also think there's just the realities of what the South is, where really it's just Georgia that could do blue and it's barely blue. It's purple. The it's deep red, even if some of the cities are blue. So you got to do the eight year strategy instead of like, oh, we barely passed it in 2020. So let's kind of stumble our way into it again. Yeah, I guess even California and New York, we've got to invest in these states because we have house seats in California. We have house seats in New York. Uh, obviously, uh, Santos in New York, that's a very critical seat. Uh, and we have the potential, I think, to win back the Congress. So I, I hope the DNC doesn't sleep on or somehow, you know, pull money out of even some of these blue states like California and New York, because there are seats that we can pick up uh, during the next presidential election that could be very, very important to our, uh, you know, our control of Congress. And then there are going to be some really difficult Senate seats uh, coming up as well. So the Democrats have a lot of work to do, not just at the presidential level. So we'll see how this 50 state strategy works. Uh, when we come forward after some news, uh, we're going to talk about voting and this notion that there may be some silent things happening, some quiet things happening that really will make it easier rather than more difficult for people to vote. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. The present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. 80. 
We are back and I'm joined in this hour by two brilliant contributors, LA Times reporter Gustavo Arellano and Monique Presley, a legal commentator and host of the podcast, Make It Make Sense with Monique Presley. All right, Gustavo, uh, let's talk about the debt ceiling. We're going to talk about in this segment voting rights and guns, but I want to talk about this debt ceiling. I don't know. I'm not uh, feeling <laughs> warm and fuzzy that Biden and these Republican lawmakers are going to reach a deal. The Republicans want to cut a huge chunk out of the budget. Of course, they don't want to touch defense spending. Uh, they want to cut this non-defense discretionary spending and to balance this or to reach the agreement if they don't cut defense spending. They're talking about a 17%. That's a whopping uh, cut in non-discretionary or in discretionary, I should call it discretionary spending. What do you think is going to happen? I'm all for less government spending. I'm not for less government spending when it's only on certain sectors of the, especially the sectors that are supposed to help folks out. Uh, defense spending, we have all known how bloated it's been for decades. I mean, Dwight Eisenhower, I like Ike, warned against the military industrial complex when he left. So this has been going on a long time. This is though a conversation that I can't even remember how, how many times I've heard. I see hope that the Republicans are not going to take the poison pill and make us, the American government, basically go into default. So I have faith and hope, even with this batch of Republicans, that they're strike a last minute deal. Sadly, Biden's going to have to give something. But I hope then that Biden can turn it into like, hey, look, I was willing to compromise. But that's the thing. Compromise it is not a defeat. Democracy is about compromise. Democracy is about uh, finding a common ground. But time's ticking. I think they have, what, two weeks to go? Very soon. I don't know, Gustavo, about this compromise. Democrats are really <laughs> upset with Obama because he was in a similar position. He made some cuts to some major programs. And this defense spending, let's be clear, Monique, defense spending is literally giving major, multi-billion dollar contracts to major corporations, mostly run again by white men. So there's no cutting in defense spending because they have big lobbyists that lobby lawmakers to make sure that that spending stays intact. And then, you know, they frighten us like, oh my God, if we cut defense spending, somehow we're going to be less safe as a country. But when I hear the word defense spending, I just think about those billions and billions of dollars that go to those contractors, federal contractors, uh, and very little of that money makes its way into the hands of, you know, minority owned businesses, women owned businesses, disadvantaged business owners. So I think we need to, to be honest about what defense spending really is in this country. Absolutely. Absolutely. And actually, I think that this merges right back to what we were last discussing, uh, which is having people of power in power who look like us, uh, who look like and reflect those in marginalized communities so that that can change. Because to me, Arita, if all of that money is going to be going out anyway, um, I want for black and brown communities, I want for women-owned businesses to be getting a part of it. And that is frankly one of the reasons why in my neck of the woods, um, Prince George's County for decades has been one of the most affluent communities for black folks. It was because there was this man by the name of Marion Barry who ensured, who ensured that at a time when contracts were going out, um, that black people were at the table. 
And he made more millionaires. They've done like documentaries on it. They've done data on it. And that's why uh, even now that's critically important state by state by state that we see governors and state legislatures who are willing to do it. And I know that I'm, I'm turned it into a whole different topic. So let me get back on point and say, um, now that it's been my soapbox of the night, let me get back here and say, I really um, am amused by the GOP at this point. They don't stand for anything they ever stood for. And even when it comes to this, like when government spending has always been one of their things, they they actually, with a straight face, are making these arguments when it was their last candidate nominee for president who won office and took us into like the height of despair financially as a country, not honoring our own debts. I, I, I think that they're in an identity crisis. Yeah, I think they're in an identity crisis. To Monique's point, Gustavo, obviously presidents can't be tit for tat. This isn't high school. This isn't, you know, school. But these, the Republican Party did not demand that Donald Trump cut spending in order to raise the debt limit. They allowed him to do so without these same conditions. So now a man named Joe Biden happens to be a Democrat is in the office. And all of a sudden they are so concerned about this deficit and so concerned about our budget that they want these massive cuts. And a lot of the cuts are to things like parks and you know national parks and libraries and other things that do benefit everyday people. But don't touch these big contractors. You know, they're, they're hands off this defense spending. So that's why I'm saying, I don't know if Biden should go in with all of these concessions. I mean, we can't go into default though, but I will say this. 14th Amendment, Gustavo, 14th (laughs) Amendment. What are the presidents who have sent our country within our lifetime to the financial brink? Reagan put us in so much debt. W sent us into Iraq, the Iraq war. Trump, through his own, I mean, you had the pandemic, yes, but also just his own stupidity. Yet the Republican, again, the Republicans, it is a political. They are the party of democracy. They are the party that all of a sudden, when it's the other guy, they say, no, we need to watch all of our pennies. Again, I'm all for fiscal prudency. I'm all for no uh, waste, waste in government spending. It's our taxpayer dollars. But Let's go. If you're going to cut, let's cut. Let's, you know, cut the billions of billions of dollars into the, uh, you know, battleships that aren't even going to be relevant in, you know, out on the seas. Like we got to spend our money smarter. The Republicans are not spending money smarter. What I'm saying about Biden is that I, I people are people are never happy. Biden. I every time I come on the show, I always talk about he's underrated. He gets a bad rap. I trust Joe will do the right thing. And I trust Joe will make the Republicans say like, hey, look, I'll give you something, but you got to care about this country. And if you're not going to if you're going to go scorched earth on my budget, then you better watch out. Dark Branton's going to come out and like lay waste to you. So let's be clear and be on the record. We love Joe Biden on Ariva Martin in real time. No doubt about (laughs) it. We love the Biden-Harris administration, but We also believe in pushing Biden, and we know that it is because folks on the left that whose politics are left of the president have caused him uh, to move further to the left in ways that benefit everyday people. So 
I just think with these Republicans, Biden has to be tough. He has to show them you cannot be inconsistent. You can't be the hypocrites that you are. Demand one thing out of the administration when I'm president, but yet give Donald Trump, uh, you know, a blank check to write as he will and not hold him accountable in the same way. And I don't want to see us, you know, blinking. Well, we don't have to blink because there is something called the 14th Amendment. And one of my very esteemed law professors who's now retired from Harvard Law School, Lawrence Tribe, has laid out the perfect way in which the 14th Amendment can be invoked by the White House uh, to get around this, what he calls basically artificial debt limit ceiling, uh, and does not even require the Republicans. So obviously we want to govern in a way that, uh, you know, is representative of the people, but if the people's representatives, i.e. the Republicans, are unreasonable uh, and are making these cuts that are going to do harm or demanding these cuts that are going to do harm to the everyday people, then I think as Democrats, we just need to stand up uh, and make sure that we are not giving away the story. And I agree, you're right, Biden has this way of evolving to positions that he's always, I think, looking out for everyday people. That's at the core of what he wants to do is benefit everyday people in ways. So, so I have no doubt that whatever he does at the end, but I just hope that he holds his ground on this one because the Republicans are complete hypocrites. They gave Trump free reign and now they want to care about spending in ways they never cared about when he was in office. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, voting and the fact that voting may be easier in some states than we thought. And are Republicans starting to soften on gun control because these red states have seen this, as it's been called, this torrent of horrific mass shootings? When we come forward right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, Gustavo, gun uh, rights or gun control advocates, I should say, they say they're seeing this faint, if sometimes fleeting fissures uh, in what has been the staunch Republican opposition to any kind of restrictions on firearms. And it's coming as a result of this, this gruesome torrent of mass killings that ironically have happened most recently in red states like Tennessee, Kentucky, and Texas. Do you think the the, the news of these mass shootings and, and just how horrible they're being played out uh, in the mainstream media might be what is needed to cause some of these Republicans to start rethinking you know, there's staunch opposition to any kind of gun control legislation. It's a ghoulish uh, prospect that carnage, straight up carnage, is what finally makes Republicans realize, hmm, maybe uh, AR-15 should not be so prominent and prevalent out into the community. Maybe there's a problem that there's hundreds of millions of guns out in the United States and yet people are still going hungry. Maybe there's a problem with our culture that we have here. I'll believe it when I see it, though. Um, I, I I know at least, you know, the conservative response to this now is saying like, OK, there's a mental health problem, which there is. There is absolutely a mental health problem. But just because there's a mental health problem doesn't mean if you solve that, then somehow the gun problem is supposed to do uh, supposed to be solved that way as well. So, or the carnage problem is supposed to happen. So my hope is 
that sadly that they come to Jesus on this and realize like we need more restrictions. We also need more resources allocated for mental health. And going back to the budget, you can't cut on those things. You cannot cut on those things and have a healthy society. And by the way, if you cut on parks, parks help in mental health as well. It's just, again, hypocrisy, Republicans and hypocrisy never ends. But I have faith in them that they will get right eventually. Yeah, talking about uh, faith and mental health and parks uh, brings me back to Texas, Monique. So you're from Texas. Ga uh, Abbott was really one of the you know very vocal voices saying he wanted to invest more in mental health because after the shootings, uh, you know, in uh, Houston and Dallas, that this is a mental health crisis. But we also know, as we talked about, when it comes to budget cuts. There's definitely not a big fight on the part of most Republicans to to restore or to ensure that there's money there for mental health facilities. We've seen across the country how many mental health facilities have been closed, uh, you know, overnight facilities, uh, you know, long-term care facilities that address mental health issues pretty much gone in most states. So I, I don't know, do, are we to trust them that they care at all about resolving or, or, or really improving the state of mental health in this country? Or is this just another way to kick the can down the road and not deal with the issue of guns and how easy it is to access guns in this country? No, we are not to trust them on, on any of it. Um, I do want to make the distinction, though, that when we say the Republicans, it is it's specifically the elected leadership Republicans. It's not the people, citizenry Republicans, because in this country, uh, the all of the, the data, all of the numbers show that this country, the people, the electorate wants these changes and, and uh, would welcome this legislation. So the people that they are voting into office are not abiding by the desires of their electorate. Now, this is one of those things which comes first, the chicken or the egg, because the next thing that has to happen is that these same Republican citizens are going to have to refuse to vote for or to put up a candidate who will actually get it done. And and that may mean, um, yeah, you're not going to get you're not going to get everything. Your 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 deal breaker issue, your one item issue can't be abortion and guns. Can't be guns, you know, and same sex marriage. Can't be same sex marriage and whatever. So there are all of these these platform issues uh, that members of the GOP care about, and. It isn't that they do not care about this one. It's that they're not willing to put their money where their mouth is and vote these folks out. So we're left with the conscience of the GOP and the conscience of the GOP is in their pockets. Period. Yeah, it's kind of interesting <laughs> that you say that because I was thinking after Uvalde, I mean, I, I thought after, all, you know, so many of these mass shootings that that would be it consistent with what you're saying. Like we're no longer going to support lawmakers who don't, want to or refuse to do anything about guns in our community. And yet we did not see this massive, you know, rush to the polls after Uvalde to throw out of office these lawmakers, as you said, who are acting in the best interest of gun lobbyists and gun manufacturers, not the best interest of individuals who have experienced gun violence. And pretty much if you live in this country, you've had gun violence touch your life 
in some kind of way, whether it's in your immediate family, your, you know, your distant family or friends, or somebody knows someone who has suffered from gun violence. So Gustavo, what, what, where's the disconnect? So Monique says the stats say that most Americans want basic, you know, common sense gun reform, whether it's universal background checks, whether it's AR-15 assault rifle bans, but yet these same people that answer, yes, we want that imposed, continue to vote for the same people who are refusing to do anything other than offer up thoughts and prayers and make a whole lot of noise about mental health, but do nothing about mental health either. It's money. It's the money that goes to candidates who are already incumbents from the NRA and other like-minded organizations. And you do not have candidates uh, who are brave enough on the Republican side to stand up and say, no, we need more gun controls. I am going against my party. Uh, it's, you know, the Democratic Party were a fractious bunch, always fighting with each other, blah, 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 blah. The Republicans, they march in lockstep in a very scary way where you have to be completely 100 percent against abortion. Call it pro-life. You have to be 100 percent completely for guns, because if not, you get you get ridiculed as a liberal. The Democrats don't believe that you are actually a moderate Republican because the party, uh, you know, the, the party leaders in the Republican Party are not that. So it's kind of like damned if you do, damned if you don't. But that's the perfect opportunity, especially in the more purple states, to have Republicans who rise up and say, look, I'm going to stand against my party. I might be a conservative all these other ways. But when it comes to guns, we need common sense. And this is something that my party or like if I was a Republican, that my party is not practicing. But you see, you see me saying that that's political suicide right there. And sadly, anyone who runs for office tends to be just wants to be a politician for life. Speaking of political suicide, uh, Monique, Vicki Haley just said, I'm not going to tell you there's going to be a federal ban on abortion because we don't have the numbers. So it would take 60 votes in the Senate to get there. And we don't have 60 votes that would line up behind a federal ban on abortion. So she may have just committed what Gustavo called this political suicide because, you know, the staunch base of her party wants to hear whoever gets in the office from the Republican Party is going to federally ban abortions. And Nikki's like, no, I'm not going to tell you that because that's a lie. <laughs> yeah. And, and she's departing from her her mentor. Uh, and the person who brought her into the White House halls because um, a lie wouldn't have stopped him. He would have just <laughs> made the promise and kept it moving. And then when he can't get it done, uh, blame the people who rightly deserve the blame for it, which would be not her, but the legislature. Um, I would like to say that this is something good to see, that she's not completely detached from truth-telling, not detached from facts and calling things like it is. But there have been so many other issues where she's just come out and said such hideous, hideous things that, I, yeah, I, I don't know. And I, and, <laughs> and I don't think that that's her political suicide. I think that as long as Donald Trump um, is, is out of jail and actually physically can go back into office, then they're all just also rants. So we, we're not giving Nikki uh, a pass because she did stand up and say one honest thing. I agree with you. She has she's so troubled in so many other ways. Before we run out of time, Gustavo, I have to ask you about Dianne Feinstein. Mm. She returned to Washington 
uh, obviously needed, her vote needed on these judicial appointments, on holding the Supreme Court accountable, but a lot of Californians are not happy. So why aren't we happy that we wanted her back to work? She goes back to work and we're we're like, Mm-mm, don't want, don't, yeah. we really don't want her back to work. She's a lame duck. I mean, she already said she's not going to run anymore. She's already in there, you know, when it comes to experience. And she's also sick. I mean, a three-month battle with shingles. I've known people who've gotten shingles as adults. It is not a pretty disease, and it really hurts you. So people want her to recuperate, and also people want to move on. And look, I would love it if she does step down. Put Gavin to his test of putting a black woman in that seat, whether it's Shirley Weber, whether it's Barbara Lee, someone, and then have them run in, you know, next year's election. Let's move on with this future. And it's not like somehow Diane would Diane stepping down would hurt California. No, it's still going to be a Democratic seat. Gavin's not going to get a Republican. So get that next blood in there. Get that next generation. And it's going to whoever replaces Diane's probably going to be to the left of her. So it's going to be even better for California. Yeah, uh, I don't think she's getting that memo, Gustavo. Lots of folks are saying it's time for Diane to retire. You're 89. You've had a fantastic run at it. You've done great things for the state and for the country. Let the next generation lead. But uh, It's hurting her legacy by staying so long. hurting her legacy. She's killing her legacy, and we don't want to see that happen because she has done some great things for the state. All right, I'm out of time. Thank you so much, Gustavo Ariano, uh, LA Times reporter. Make sure you follow him and read his column, Monique. Presley, legal commentator, host of the podcast, Make It Make Sense with Monique Presley. Make sure you check her out every day on Instagram. Uh, always a pleasure to see both of you. Uh, be well until next time. All right, after some news, it is hour two, and we're talking to Danielle Monet Truitt. Stay tuned and stay with us right here on KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. Dodgers take on the Minnesota Twins. Receive a commemorative Dodger poncho when you purchase a ticket pack. For more information, visit dodgers.com slash ticket pack. This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. The Lakers arrived in Denver Monday morning and had their first full practice since eliminating Golden State Friday night. Number one item on the game plan checklist is Denver center Nikola Jokic. How the Lakers deal with the two-time MVP could determine the outcome of the Western Conference Finals. Jokic averaged a triple-double in the semifinals against Phoenix. He almost averaged a triple-double in the four regular season games against the Lakers. 23.3 points, 12.3 rebounds, and 9.8 assists. Anthony Davis cannot afford to take any games off in this series. Game one is Tuesday at 5.30 on ESPN. The Dodgers are on a roll. They won their fifth straight after sweeping San Diego over the weekend. The Dodgers are 13-2 in their last 15. Minnesota is in town tonight for the start of a three-game series. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. More news, opinions, and conversation when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States of America. The story of Emmett Till and his mother is a story of a family's promise and loss in a nation's reckoning with hate, violence, and abuse of power. It's a story that was seared into our memory and our conscience, the nation's conscience, when Mrs. Till insisted that an open casket for her murdered and maimed 14-year-old son. She said, let the people see what I've seen. The reason the world saw what she saw was because of another hero in this story, the black press. Jet Magazine, the Chicago Defender, and other black radio and newspapers were unflinching and brave in making sure America saw what she saw. 
Ida B. Wells once said, and I quote, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon the wrongs. Turning the light of truth upon the wrongs. We're unapologetically progressive. KBLA Talk 1580, and we don't black down. The number of people crossing the U.S. border fell this weekend. A pandemic-era border rule, which let the U.S. turn asylum seekers away, expired last week. There was a record surge of crossings at the U.S.-Mexico border leading up to that change. There were 4,200 crossings on Saturday, but government data shows that that is down from more than 10,000 a day earlier last week. North Carolina's governor vetoed an abortion ban on Saturday. The bill passed by the state legislature this month would ban nearly all abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy. It was blocked by Democratic Governor Roy Cooper. Republicans hold supermajorities in both chambers of the legislature and could override the veto. But Democrats are trying hard to pull some to their side. States are sending people to college for free to fight a teacher shortage. Apprenticeships allow trainees to make money while they learn the craft and earn their credentials. In the past 17 months, programs have been certified in 16 states. The teacher shortage is caused by a combination of low pay, exhaustion, and a feeling of being increasingly under attack. Top advisors to President Biden are planning a 2024 battleground strategy that fully invests in North Carolina while mounting an early challenge in the increasingly Republican domain of Florida, home to two of his top rivals. In several capitals across red America, gun control advocates say they are seeing faint, if sometimes fleeting, Fissures in what has long been staunch Republican opposition to any whiff of firearms restrictions. The small shifts have come amid a gruesome torrent of mass killings in red states, including shootings at a school in Tennessee, a bank in Kentucky, a home outside Houston, and earlier this month, a suburban Dallas outlet mall where eight were killed. While there are ongoing efforts to make it more difficult to vote in many Republican-controlled states, a research group found there has also been a quiet counter-movement to expand access to voting across the country. A new report by the Voting Rights Lab, a nonpartisan group that focuses on analysis that advances free and fair elections, found that nearly a third of legislation passed in state state houses earlier this year make it easier to vote through policies such as expanding early and male voting opportunities, restoring felon voting rights, and providing more time for voters to fix errors on ballots. Heading into an expected meeting between President Joe Biden and the congressional leaders this week, Republican lawmakers say an agreement on spending caps is important in securing their support to avert a dangerous debt default. The House passed debt ceiling bill would slash federal spending to fiscal year 2022 levels, requiring appropriators charged with allocating government funding to cut $131 billion compared with what Congress is currently spending. We'll see if President Biden has to invoke the 14th Amendment to avert a dangerous debt crisis. 
You are listening and watching Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is hour two, and in this hour, I'm going one-on-one with Law and Order Organized Crimes, Danielle Monet Truitt. Danielle's going to talk about her role uh, on the uber-popular Law and Order Law and Order Organized Crime. Also, her one-woman play, Three Black Girl Blues. Uh, this play is uh, slated to begin at the Hudson Theater uh, and will run for three weekends beginning May 19th. Going to talk about uh, this play. What does it mean for three black girl blues? We're going to see three actual women show up in this one woman play. And what is it like to play Sergeant Ayana Bell, an African American queer law enforcement officer on Law and Order Organized Crime? And just for the record, Law and Order is one of my favorite all time <laughs> dramas. In fact, I love everything that Duke. Dick Wolf produces. So I'm super excited to sit down uh, with Danielle to talk about what is it like to play uh, you know, this role on Law and Order and to act next to one of my favorites, which is Officer Stabler. Yes, everybody loves Stabler. So I got lots of questions to ask Danielle. When we come forward, it is my one-on-one with Danielle Monet Truitt right here on KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and this is Ariva Martin in real time and this is hour two. And in this hour, I'm going one-on-one with actress Danielle Monet Truitt. She is the woman behind Law and Order Organized Crime, Sergeant Ayana Bell a.k.a. the Law & Order franchise's most groundbreaking co-lead character yet. Uh, She is being applauded for being both a Black woman and queer. And while Truett herself is straight uh, within her journey to this role, she says she had a personal breakthrough. Uh, We're going to talk about what that breakthrough is and what it's like playing a queer lieutenant on such a popular show. Thank you and welcome, Danielle. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, full disclosure, I am a big, big fan of Law & Order. Everything (laughs) that Dick Wolf uh, makes, I just think he has such a perfect formula. Uh, I'm so excited (laughs) about organized crime because, you know, in the SUV or uh, Special Victims SVU, uh, Elliot Stabler went off and then they reprised his role on organized crime and they added you as the co-lead. So first I got to ask you, what is it like uh, <laughs> to be on Law and Order, like one of the longest, what is it, like 20 years, the original Law yeah. and Order, uh, you know, drama has been on the air and it just seems like each iteration of Law and Order is super successful, as successful as the original uh, franchise. So what is yeah. it like playing alongside uh, Elliot Stabler. <laughs> uh, it's really awesome. Uh, it's really awesome uh, playing alongside Chris Maloney. He's uh, he is a great captain to our ship. Um, you know, he's he was a part of the franchise for 10 years before he left um, and went to do some other things. So he was really excited to come back. And I was really excited to, you know, join such a epic franchise. I mean, there really has not been one like it 
ever in TV history. So it was a big deal. Uh, I got the job during the pandemic. It came out of the blue. I didn't audition. They they cast me based on some of my other work. Um, and it really has changed my life, honestly. Um, and I just, I love our cast. I love our crew. I love our show, the way we do what we do. It's a little bit different. We're like the new kids on the block. And uh, I think it's really great. So I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that you got the role without auditioning. And I read somewhere that you had only had one other like really big leading role. And that was on 2017, the BET show Rebel. And you've had, a, <laughs> you know, you had other, you know, some other parts, but it wasn't like you left one big show and was going over to Law and Order. So yeah. that must have been really, uh, you know, quite exhilarating to learn that you have been selected to be on this franchise show. And I'm thinking, I guess, other than Ice T, well, <laughs> I'm just trying to think of the other black leads in the Dick. I mean, they're black characters in all of his shows, yeah. but I put you up there with like Ice T in terms of being a co lead. Yeah, I mean, I'm the I'm the first black woman to be number two on the show. Yeah, um, Esapetha Merkinson, who I love very much, was a regular on Law and Order for many years. Um, she was but, a captain, right, on the original series. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I believe she was a captain, um, and I love her. Um, but yeah, I'm the. <laughs> I guess I'm the first black woman to be. <laughs> A co-lead. But yeah, I did Rebel in 2017. And then I did, I was a lead on a show called Deputy on Fox um, in 2019, I think it was, or 2020. Yeah. No. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> 2020. You know, COVID just, it, I, I don't know. know what year it is anymore. <laughs> I know. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Uh, but before Law and Order, I uh, I think the reason why I got on their radar is because I booked a recurring role on Chicago Med um, right before I got cast as uh, Ayanna Bell for Organized Crime. So um, I did one episode of Chicago Med and I didn't even get to do my other episode because they had already took me off and <laughs> put me on Organized Crime. So it was pretty cool. Wow. Okay. So what is it like playing Coley to Chris Maloney, who's Elliot Stabler, and playing a queer officer? Well, let me ask you this. Did you know when you got the role that Ayanna Bell was queer? I didn't. No, no. They offered me the role and I had a meeting on Zoom with the producing director. And we kind of went over some of the material um, and I asked, he asked me if I had any questions. And so I asked, I said, who is Denise? Cause there was a scene talked about Denise or whatever. And so I was like, who's Denise? And you know, my straight mind, I'm like, oh, that's my, her mama, sister. <laughs> I was not thinking. Okay. And so they said, oh, that's her wife. And I was like, oh, oh, oh okay. okay. And they were like, is that okay? I was like, yeah, it's fine. I said, I just didn't, I didn't know, you know, that, that def is my first time playing a queer character. Um, and, you know, as an actor, especially in this day and age when there's so many people who kind of take issue with straight actors playing queer characters, you know, there's all this conversation about it. You know, mm -hmm. that is something that's kind of good to know. <laughs> um, so, well, yeah. did you get any flack? What did you get? I have not. I have not gotten any flack. I haven't gotten any flack. The fans have embraced me wholeheartedly. Um you know, I think it's the way you position yourself in those situations. You know, I'm definitely an ally of the LGBTQ community. 
you know, I there's people in my family that are queer, you know, my friends, you know, and in my mind, we're all human. We're all people. You know, we all just we all want the same things. And that's how I've approached this character. You know, I refuse to play her as a caricature. You know, oh, I'm gay, so I have to act this or that way. I'm like, she is a woman. You know, she cares about her family. She cares about her livelihood, her job, seeking justice, you know. And after all, the show is called Law and Order Organized Crime. You know, <laughs> that's really the focus focus of it. So I think they've done a good job of just making her human, you know. Did you have to do any special, like, research or preparation, you think, in order to play her in an authentic way? Because I think you're right. Nobody wants to see a straight person, like, you know, playing a gay person. They they yeah. want to feel like this person is really embodying what it means to be, you know, a queer Black woman, which, you know, you're living at the intersection of so many issues when you are a queer black woman. Yes. So did you have to like, what did you do to get ready to be a good Ayana Bell? You know, I think I, of course, you know, I spoke to people, I talked to people about their experiences, but at the end of the day, I, I just saw her as a human, you know, mm -hmm. I just saw her as a human as a, I mean, of course I can relate to the black or her being a black woman. Of course, that's easy for me. Um, and then I had to talk to other people like our showrunner at the time, uh, Eileen Shaken is, is a queer woman, you know? Mm. So I spoke to her about having a wife, you know, what is, what is that like? You know, I know nothing about it. So I'm like, what? Did you have a, you had a live in, right? I remember some episode where you had a, like a serious, I had a wife. Yeah. Yeah. She yes. had a wife. Um, she left you, right? Yeah. She, she <laughs> left them <laughs> and took the baby. Bell took the baby. Her. I yeah. her baby. <laughs> because you were too busy, right? She said you didn't have enough time for the family and the relationships. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what I realized, though, is whether you're queer, straight, relationships are relationships. You know, I was actually going through a divorce when I got this role. So wow. the fact that Belle's wife ends up leaving her was hilarious to me because I'm like, oh, like art is once again imitating, <laughs> imitating life. life, you know. Uh, so I, I can relate to a marriage ending, how devastating that is, you know, having to deal with co-parenting and, uh, you know, having relationship with your kids and figuring that out. I can relate to being busy. I'm a bi-coastal mother now, you know, Belle's busy with her job. There was just so many ways that we related, you know, right. it was not very hard for me to have empathy for my character and play her in a, in a realistic way. Okay, so as much as I love Chris Maloney, Olivia Benson, okay, she's like, <laughs> she is law and order, right? That's yes, what makes is. that franchise so incredibly successful. Yes. And their crossover, what I love, see, if you if you watch Dick Wolf, there are all these crossover episodes where, you know, special victims unit, unit and organized crime, and sometimes one of my new favorites is Chicago PD. You know, they may throw something in there. So what has that been like working with so many of the other stars in that franchise when they do these crossover shows? Oh, it's so fun. It's it's like, I, it's kind of like, I guess a family reunion, but also it kind of felt like when you first get to high school and you do orientation and the seniors like embrace you and show you around and make you feel comfortable, you know? Ice-T is awesome. I've shot a lot with him. Uh, 
this last episode that you guys will see on Thursday, we had a lot of scenes together and he is hilarious. I think he's like the old uh, black uncle, you know. Oh he, God, he's he OG wisdom. law and order, yes. OG, and, and, and Mariska is great. Like we, we've done several scenes together. She's hilarious. Just the life of the party, you know, I, I really enjoyed working with her. Um, Kelly is awesome. I, everybody is just, is really great. And they just embraced me immediately you know it was there was no weirdness you know it was they just loved on me and embraced me and welcomed me to the family I'm so glad to hear that because you know sometimes your favorite shows you'll you'll read something about the toxic nature you know and as an employment <laughs> lawyer I'm always thinking oh my god you know it's about to be a bunch of lawsuits or it's already been a bunch of lawsuits right. so I'm really glad to hear that you were brought into a family that embraced you for who you are and you know yeah. there's not all that kind of toxic you know, stuff that happens on, on shows and workplaces, no matter what. But I did read something people were saying, well, maybe you were leaving or maybe your character was being written. Like you were going to oh, get a big promotion. That was, yeah, that was last season. Um, I, That was season two. They were doing like this thing. Or no, no, that was, God, our seasons are so long. I'm like, I don't know what season <laughs> it is. It was earlier this season, I think. Yeah, I think it doing was. Doing something where the, 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 task force was splitting up like no they ain't getting rid of they ain't getting rid of ayana <laughs> okay okay ayana and stabler ayana and stabler are a little duo so um she's such an important character you know to the franchise at this point even though she's new but she's right. very important so i think she'll be sticking around for for you know some time glad to hear that because people are all you know getting worried like wait a minute is she leaving and then you know of course which we want uh, Elliot and Olivia to have their love affair, which, right. you know, they're going to make us wait, I don't know, another 20 years before they hook up or something. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Uh, but let's talk about what else you have going on. You know, obviously, congratulations for landing that role without an audition. Congratulations on all the success. And obviously, mm -hmm. not just the uh, Law & Order family that, you know, has embraced you, the fans have embraced you and that show was renewed for a second season. You guys are in second season, right? No, we're we're about to go to fourth season. Oh, going to fourth. Okay, well, fantastic. Yeah. So yeah. we know the history with Law and Order. You could literally be on this job for another 15 plus years. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, right? So uh, stable employment, you know, nothing yes. to, uh, you know, thumb our noses at. But you have some other loves outside of Law and Order. You have this uh, one woman play coming up. It starts right on May 19th. Yep, this Friday. Okay, and runs for three weekends. Yes, until June 4th at the Hudson Theater in Los, An in Los Angeles on uh, Santa Monica Boulevard. <laughs> so you said you're bi-coastal, so you're living half your time in LA, half your time in New York? Yeah, so I'm, I'm in New York when we're shooting. I have a home in LA, and I travel to Sacramento, where I'm from, a lot because my ex-husband moved back to Sacramento. So our children are in school in Sac. So I'm really mostly between New York and Sacramento because I got to see my babies. Uh, <laughs> right. But uh, okay. LA is still home as well. So yeah, I'm here. Um, I promised myself when I booked this job that I would do, that I would not stop being creative and um, creating and producing my own work. That's something I've been doing since before I ever booked a TV show or any role on television, I um, was working on this play many years ago. Um, mm -hmm. And 
it is one of the highlights of my career. It really is. Um, and it's something I'm very proud of and something that I want to continue to pour into, you know, to see how far it can go because it really is a fantastic show. So I promised myself during my hiatus, I would do my play or shoot a short film or do something outside of TV land, you know, right, to keep right. myself sharp. Um, I love playing Ayanna Bell, um, but most of us who are on TV, especially in procedural land, we're only using a, a certain amount of our talent and what we right. can do. Uh, and this play gives me the opportunity to really dive deep. And uh, like Chris Maloney said, when he saw the reading, I get to eat. <laughs> uh, so I'm really, I'm really excited to do it. So you said you've been working on this for a while. When did you get the idea for this play? When did you actually start working on it? Yeah, I got the idea for this play in 2007. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And I called my friend, Anthony Dewan and asked him if he could help me write it because he's a fantastic writer and he said he would. And then three years later in 2010, we came up with Three Black Girl Blues. At that time, it didn't really have a title, but it became Three Black Girl Blues. And the first time I produced it was in a little warehouse in Van Nuys, California. With I invited, you know, anybody I could uh, and I put it up. And from there throughout the years, whenever, you know, I got a little bit of money, I would put it up for two or three performances so now I get to do it for three weeks and it's an equity production and, you know, we're doing it legit. So I'm I'm really, really excited. Wow. Well, we're going to talk a lot about the play, what people can expect, those who are going to go see it over the next three weekends. But I want to ask you about uh, being a beauty queen, because I know you were <laughs> crowned Miss uh, Black Sacramento in <laughs> 2000. It's been a minute. Yes. Uh, but what was it like being in a beauty pageant and then winning? You weren't just in it. You were in it to win it and you won. So what was it, it like was having really, that crown at Tierra? You know? It was awesome. I mean, you know, it, it it is technically a beauty pageant, but we like to say it's really a scholarship pageant and a and a um like a self-worth pageant. You know, black women, black girls, they really need to be poured into and for them to know that. They're beautiful, that the way they look is beautiful and accepted and, um, you know, that we're we are much more than what this this world and the society has tried to um, make us believe that we are. And so it was a very empowering uh, experience and it focused more on that and more on achievement than than beauty or whatever. But the funniest part is I'm I'm slew foot. So my feet, I walk like, I walk like my daddy. And so for the pageant, I had to learn how to walk like a lady. <laughs> and I ended up winning the walk, like the walking con, which is his, my Nana to this day, couldn't believe it. She said, I just couldn't believe. She said, the way you walk, I couldn't believe you got out there and did that. So it was really fun. It was an honor being Miss Black Sacramento. I did a lot of, you know, stuff around town for the next year. Um, and it, it, it really encouraged me and it made me know that whatever I wanted to do in this life, I could do. Well, when we come forward, we want to talk about your activism, balancing all that you have, uh, acting and creating while being a mom and learn more about this amazing play, Three Black Girl Blues. Stay with this KBLA Talk 1580. Ariva time is the right time. More of Ariva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. 
You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back with Danielle Monet Truitt, and she is one of my favorites on Law and Order Organized Crime. You've seen her uh, as Sergeant Ayanna Bell, and she is in a new play. Three Black Girl Blues, and we're talking about all the things that you have to juggle as a successful actress and a stage performer. And you mentioned, Danielle, that you are bi-coastal, not just with two cities, but actually three cities. So how do you juggle it all? How do you manage, uh, you know, filming for a television show, creating a stage play? And I think you have two sons, right? I do. Yeah. Two sons. <laughs> How do you keep it all together and make you it look know, easy? Cause you look gorgeous. Thank you. Thank you. It's the Lord. No. <laughs> That's what I say. Uh, I have a, I have a very um, supportive tribe of people who are very helpful in you know, making sure that I can get some rest when I need to and help take some of the burden off me. Little things like picking me up from the airport. I mean, you know, mm. th those are little things that they, they will do. Um, one of my friends, you know, has driven to San Francisco to pick me up from the San Francisco airport and, you know, bring me to Sacramento, you know, um, my mom, you know, my parents, my godmother, you know, they've driven the boys from Sacramento down to LA so that I could spend you know, time with them. Um, but it has been a lot to navigate and co-parenting has been challenging is getting better, you know, now, but that's, you know, that's a whole interesting dynamic. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, but yes, at the end is. of the day, both of us just care about, you know, what's best for the kids. And for me, you know, working in New York, I don't want to disrupt my children's lives and bring them to a completely different city where they have no family, you know, I would rather, if they have to move somewhere, I would rather it be Sacramento. My family is there, you know, their father's family is there. So they're surrounded by love, you know, and um, I just, every other weekend, you know, I have to make that flight <laughs> to California to see them because there's just no way that I'm not going to, you know, I, they are the most important thing in my world. And my job has been great. And, you know, making sure that I have the time off, you know, having a Friday off and a Monday off so that I can right. travel, you know, to see them. Um, this next season, fourth season, is only going to be 13 episodes instead of 22. So now is that because of the writer's strike or because of just no, the way they're changing the show? Yeah, it's the, it's the way our show is set up. You know, we're more of a serialized show, whereas SVU and the original Law and Order are like one off episodes. Um, but ours has like an arc over time. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to see if 13 episodes would serve our show better story-wise. Um, so should be interesting, but I was actually happy because that means I'll only be in New York for six months instead of nine and a half months, which means wow. I'll get to spend much more time with my boys who are eight and 12. So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's an important time for me to be there. So people can understand literally to shoot 22 episodes, it takes nine and a half months. Yeah. So there are people online when we have like breaks uh, in during the season, there'll be like three weeks that we're not showing episodes. And they're like, right. y'all getting on my nerves, not having my show, <laughs> not having my show on. I'm tired of all these breaks. 
And I'm like, listen, guys, like we only it takes eight days for us to shoot an episode. And that is really pushing it because it should be 10 days, but they be working us to death. So it's only eight days to shoot an episode and it's 22 of them jokers. So we have to take breaks because after we shoot the episode, Do the math, editor, people, eight times right. 22 is a lot. Yeah, yeah like and then they have to edit the episode. That takes days. We would never be able to get the episodes out in time unless we took those breaks. <laughs> so with 13 episodes, may our show, Organized Crime, may not have as many breaks because we only have 13 episodes. So who right. knows? It might go straight through and people, you know, for 13 weeks straight, they'll be able to watch. But it takes a lot to, to get well, these OK, out. I'm not going to co-sign on the crazy and the people, you know, shouting at you about those episodes. But we have had to get used to yeah. the way episodes now play out on television because it used to be a popular show would just go until the summer. Right. You'd yeah. have nine continuous months and then you get your summer break and they'd either right. show reruns or they'd show some summer run show. And then right. September, the show would start back and you could count on it. Mm -hmm. But now with streaming and the way everything changes, some of your favorite shows are six episodes. So 13 is still going to be a lot of episodes and yeah. 22. I mean, 22 is a, now, a you know, the way episodes are, that's a lot of episodes. A lot so. of episodes. And it's hard when like a show like ours where it's serialized to do a serialized show for 22 episodes yeah. is a huge feat. So that's huge. We'll, we'll serialized means folks that one episode follows the next episode. So it's yeah, not like you, if you watch uh, my other favorite SUV or Chicago PD, you know, one week is about X. The next week is about Y. They're not they're not related. It's the same characters. Connected. They're doing the same stuff. But you don't need to see last week to know what's happening this week. Exactly. And that's a big difference. So good for you. Hope you get to spend more time in Sacramento with your babies because yeah. as moms, you know, I, as a mother myself of three kids, I know how important that is uh, mm -hmm. to have that time. But in addition to your kids, in addition to all your work you're doing uh, with this very popular series, you're a big activist. How are you fitting in your community activism and tell us what you've been working on recently. Yeah. You know, I have to say I have been trying to juggle my personal life <laughs> a lot. So the majority of things I'm doing, like I'm not very boots on the ground at this point. Like it's more of like, how can I support this organization? Like, well, you know, what, what is uh, this organization working on? Like, you know, can I post about it? Can I give money to it? You know, and trying to, support in those. Now, you ways. know you shouldn't have said that online, Daniel. Everybody's going to be hitting you up. Oh, she's giving away money. Oh, she said she wants to give away some money. I didn't say it was a lot. <laughs> I didn't say it was a lot. But I'm, you know, but I'm I'm trying to stay as connected as possible. Um, But getting this show, you know, having my kids in another city, like I'm really trying to get my footing back. Um, But the first, one of the things I'll be supporting right now is the writer's strike. <laughs> <laughs> that's one thing I'll be, I will be boots on the ground next week after my play opens to support the writers um, because yeah. it is important that they get fair compensation for what they're doing. And honestly, more so black writers, because it, there's, there, that's a nuanced um, uh, experience. You know, it's, it's everything that the regular writers want, 
but also black writers aren't getting the opportunities that some of the other writers are getting because of some of these rules that are in place, you know? And, and we know it was just really after George Floyd's murder that we saw more, you know, a bigger push to get more black writers even engaged in the field. And just as some were starting to get jobs, now the strike comes along and you're right. I mean, we've always got to look out because, you know, we know if Hollywood catches a cold, Black folks have pneumonia. So exactly. that writer's strike is impacting all writers, but definitely impacting writers of color, particularly yes. Black writers. It's hitting differently for them. Yes. So I'm glad to hear we're going to need the actors. I'm a member of SAG. We're going to need the SAG mm -hmm. union. We're going to need the directors. We're going to need everybody in this industry, yeah. you know, on board supporting yeah. the writers because, you know, without writing, without writers, so much... Of, you know, majority of what happens in Hollywood just would not happen. So, well, yeah, people uh, were complaining about us having to take breaks. So, it's, it, if the writers don't get what they want, it's going to be a real break. It's, it's going to be, a, be a really break. big break on all of your favorite shows because <laughs> exactly. so much of what people watch. And I have a friend; she's a makeup artist. She was telling me she was going to shoot a movie. The script was already written. But you can't change a word. They can't change a line. So she was worried that they were going to end up getting shut down anyhow, even mm. though they weren't violating the rules because you can't right. be in production on stuff that's already written. But if you can't change something and it's crazy, then, you know, it may end up getting shut down anyhow. But yes, right. we're, we're standing in complete solidarity with the writers, hoping that the strike ends sooner rather yeah. than later. Uh, when yeah. we come forward, Danielle, we got to talk about three black girl blues. I want to make sure all of my listeners and viewers get out to see you in this play. So I want you to give us a little tease, uh, give us a little taste of what they're going to see when they uh, show up to support you for three black girl blues. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. All right, I am talking with Danielle Monet Truitt. She has a new one-woman play called Three Black Girl Blues. It's opening at the Hudson Theater right here in Los Angeles, California. And it's only going to be for three weekends only. I want to make sure everybody gets out to see this play. So Danielle, give us a little taste of what people are going to see in this play. You've been working on it since 2007, so I know you got it down. You've perfected it. <laughs> and it's going to be amazing. So yes. tell us what we're going to see. It is. So you're going to see, um, I'm going to play three different women. They grew up together since they were six years old. Now they are adults and they are dealing with traumas that they haven't dealt with. Mm. Secrets, betrayal, their own personal struggles and trying to figure out life. So the first character you'll see is Keisha. Um Keisha is from the hood. She don't play like that. You know, she ain't got no time for nothing <laughs> <laughs> except okay. for except for her boyfriend. She ain't scared of nothing. Right. Okay. She ain't scared of nobody <laughs> uh, except for her boyfriend who, you know, they have a very toxic relationship um, and it causes her to do some things that um, she's probably going to end up regretting um, very, very soon. Uh, and then the, she's, you'll see her. Now, is Keisha based on anybody that you knew back in the day, somebody that you're currently, you know, in, in your well, life currently? My, si my sister likes to say that Keisha was created based off of her. 
<laughs> proudly, proudly, she proudly wears the Keisha badge. But re honestly, it's a mix of, you know, women that me and Anthony Duan grew up around. I'm a, I got a little bit of Keisha in me if you push me, you know, uh, hard enough. Um, but the, the play is set in Sacramento, California. So these women are, you know, women we grew up with. They're our aunties, our mothers, grandmothers, cousins, women we were friends with, women we couldn't stand. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're a mix of all of them. Um, so you'll see Keisha in all of her glory. You know, she's the kind, she's like, listen, this is my world and y'all just in it. So that's when the play, <laughs> that's Keisha. yeah, when the play starts, you're going to be brought into Keisha's world abruptly. Uh, and she's, she, she's on the phone with Jill, who is the second character you'll meet. And Jill um, grew up in the hood, but moved to the suburbs with her husband. She's a stay-at-home mom. She has three children. She's a Christian. You know, she is very focused on always doing the right things. Uh, but she's going crazy, stir crazy in that house with them babies. Uh, and she probably is an alcoholic at this point. At this point. Um, her husband is, yeah, he provides for the family, but he is not a partner, you know, and she thought when she was getting married that she was going to have a partner and that she was going to have a certain kind of life. And right. unfortunately, she's not living the life that she thought she would be living. So she's very unhappy, you know, um, but tries to stay very positive. You know, God is got the mask, got the mask, it, yes, on. Got okay. that mask on until she can't keep it on, you know, uh, by the end. And then our, she's talking to the third character you'll meet, which is Stephanie. Stephanie is an executive. Um, you know, she's partner at a firm. She is fly. She has got it together from head to toe. Um, but she struggles with mental illness, anxiety, depression, and she's talking to her therapist. So uh, it, it delves into, you know, mental health uh, as Black women and as, as Black people in general. And you get it's not one of these plays where you're being preached to mm -hmm. you're literally seeing these human beings trying to navigate their own trauma like that's what you're seeing um and you're going to laugh you're going to cry you're going to be like what the heck like you you're going to be shocked you're going to feel uncomfortable at certain times um but it really is a beautiful depiction of um human growth and the 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 pain that comes with having to break cycles in your life, you know? Now you're playing all three of these characters. Yeah. So I, I'm just trying to think, is there ever an opportunity or a moment where all three of the women are together on stage together? <laughs> no, no, they're not talking. That would be challenging, but you know. Cool. I mean, I did a one woman play before this one where I was switching. I played like 27 characters and I was switching between like talking to each character and changing my voice like between. Wow. So it's definitely it's definitely doable. Um, and in Keisha's monologue, I kind of play like two other little characters that are kind of talking back and forth to each other. So it's it. I. It's mainly three women with a couple, like three other little sprinkled characters in there, which is which is cool. So, so you talk about playing on this procedural, this drama, organized crime, and saying only using a certain part of your creative brain. Mm -hmm. What what part of your brain gets utilized or stretched 
when you're playing in this play, this one woman play, you're on the, you know, you're on a stage, there's a live audience, there's no, you know, cutting, there's no post, there's none of that. So what yeah. part of your brain are you working in this genre? Well, I feel like you have to use, I mean, you have to use your right and left side of your brain when you're doing theater and you're playing all, you're playing all the characters. Like you said, there's nobody out there to come save you if you forget your lines. <laughs> you know, there have been times like last year when I did the play up in Sacramento, um, somebody's phone started ringing in the middle of the play. And I had to improvise because it was ringing for so long. I couldn't just continue on and act like the phone wasn't ringing. Like that's the beautiful part about theater. Like when things So, so what did you do? Oh, so it was a perfect moment. So it was in the second monologue, which is which is Jill, and she's talking to Stephanie. And Stephanie asked to use the bathroom. So you see Jill watch Stephanie leave the uh, stage, and Jill is by herself for a few for a few moments. And so while she's by herself, the phone starts. The lady's phone starts going off, mm -hmm. right? And so. It starts going off and, you know, um, Jill, you know, kind of ignores it. But then when Stephanie comes back in the room, she goes, oh, your phone. Somebody was trying to call you. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just added somebody trying to call you. But the but the brilliant thing about it is in the third monologue in Stephanie's monologue, someone is trying to call, trying to call her. her. You, wow. you hear her phone vibrating and she won't answer it. So it actually worked out perfect for the phone to go off. Then when I did a reading in New York a couple of weeks ago, um, same thing happened. Like the, the girl's phone um, kept going off. Yeah. And it, it was the second monologue. Again, the same character. Well, maybe and you need to just put this phone into the second monologue. Maybe that <laughs> no, just needs to I, become a part of. Exactly. Maybe that's like an omen, right? Ringing and ringing. So I, I don't even remember what I said, but I said something. The entire audience just died laughing. Like everybody cracked up laughing. But I think that's the cool thing about theater is you have to right. go with it. If you spill something, if you trip. If you, I mean, all kinds of things happen. I've spilled right. stuff during the play that I just had to, I had to figure it out. I figure out how right. to clean it up and keep going while well, you're doing it. While the audience has to go with you and most audiences, if they love you, they'll just roll with you. So Vanessa Bell Calloway is a good friend of mine. And I love her. I, I, remember, I know she's so fabulous. She did a one woman play, Zora Neale Hurston, mm -hmm. that had so much dialogue. And I remember going backstage after the play saying, girl, how in the hell did you remember all of that dialogue? So I'm yeah. going to ask you that when you're doing a one woman play, like I do a lot of public speaking and I've done TED Talks. I have to remember like maybe a 20 minute speech you're going to give. Yeah. How do you remember like dialogue for an hour plus performance? Like what do you do to, to you know, get your mind ready yeah. to be able to just regurgitate that kind of content? Well, when I was such a first, long period of time, right. When I was first starting, you know, to learn these characters, um, there's a lot of different techniques. Number one, when you're doing a play, blocking is huge with remembering lines. So if I know that on this line, I'm going to go pick this box up and open it, then I, I attach my line to my movement, you know? Mm -hmm. So I know that when I cross the stage, I'm on this certain part, you know, and that helps me get like a lay of the land almost, but things that I do to memorize, 
Um, I record myself saying the lines with no emotion, just straight. Mm-hmm. And I put my earphones in and I go to sleep and I listen oh. to it while I go to sleep. When I wake up in the morning, automatically, I remember a little bit more than I did the day before. The other right. thing, writing it out, like on a tablet, you mm-hmm. just start writing those lines out and yep. your brain remembers it. Um, and then the more you do it, the more you practice, the more, you know, take chunks, you take a chunk, like for instance, I'll show you real quick. So this is the script, right? So if, mm-hmm. if I take this part and I cover it with a piece of paper and I try to remember just that section, you know, right. and, and then once I remember that section, then I move, then I try to remember the next section and you just kind of go page by page, you know? Wow. Um, but at this point, I have done this play so many times. Like I you can recite it in your sleep. Well, I honestly can. Yeah, I am so impressed with all that you have going on. Congratulations, good luck. Thank you for stopping by, spending some time with me again. This is Organized Crimes, Danielle Monet Truitt. She brings her one woman show, uh, Three Black Girl Blues, to the Hudson Theater here in Los Angeles for a three weekend run, beginning May nineteenth. Make sure you check this out. Uh, because we want to support her in all that she's doing. She's doing a phenomenal job on one of my favorite shows. And I, I, I can only imagine that this play is going to be as fabulous as you are. So Thank again, you. congratulations. Good luck to you and all that you have going on. And I'm going to be in I'm at that Hudson Theater checking you out because you've made Yay. me so interested <laughs> in seeing this play. And I'm going to tell all my girlfriends to make sure they check it out as well. Again, it Thank is Danielle you. Monet Truitt right here on KBLA Talk 1580. The next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Ayers Report. Stay with us, KBLA. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.